The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information, including faculty disclosures and how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Myovant Sciences, LTD, and Pfizer, Inc. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our podcasts in our educational series with this specific episode titled Systemic Therapies for Advanced Prostate Cancer, short and long-term side effects. It's really my pleasure to host uh, Dr. Chad Rich. Uh, Dr. Rich has uh, joined us on a number of different uh, Office of Education podcast series and programming, and we're always delighted to have him. He is Associate Professor of Urology at the Desai Safety Urology Institute at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And his expertise is in really all realms of urological oncology, uh, today, specifically, uh, he'll be speaking to us about specific uh, nuances and aspects of prostate cancer. So, Chad, as I said, always our pleasure to have you. Uh, we really appreciate uh, your time, and you're always so willing to give it. And again, uh, big thanks for taking uh, some time out of your day to help out with this podcast. Thanks, Jay. It's my pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate the invitation. Um, you know, th- this topic I thought was pretty interesting because as you know, you know, the field of advanced prostate cancer and the different systemic therapies is really expanding. And while a lot of us have a pretty good handle on, you know, efficacy in different areas of advanced prostate cancer and which agents to use, some of the things that are kind of newer to us, especially with the novel therapies are the short and long-term side effects. So, you know, the, the sort of objectives of this podcast and the things we're going to discuss um, beyond just saying what systemic therapies are in different advanced prostate cancer patients is, you know, how do we identify some of the short and long-term side effects of um, the more routine things like ADT and then some of these novel hormonal treatments that we're using, such as abiraterone, enzalutamide, and so on. How do we recognize those side effects and um, how do we manage them as urologists? Or even if we're not primarily managing them, you know, who are the right people to send these patients to and how do we do it in a sort of multidisciplinary fashion? And then, as I mentioned, the field is exploding. So you have these novel therapies like PARP inhibitors, immunotherapy, theranostics, and all of these agents come with their own sort of unique set of side effects. So, you know, we'll kind of go over those in in a high level format and and how we would manage these. That's great. I I think, um, you know, you're you're so right. I, I, I think that when you look at the landscape of prostate cancer, um, and you look at the treatment paradigm, especially with the population, the, the therapies are improving, the population continues to age, and therefore you have a lot more patients that you're going to end up seeing who are in this life cycle of therapy, whether it was initially you saw them for localized disease, and now they've progressed to that disease spectrum, and now they're on systemic therapies. And, and truthfully, you know, these are patients that have, you know, been with you in many cases from the very beginning. And so uh, it's it's not easy to suddenly have them see somebody else. They want to keep seeing us. They have this connection with uh, us as their urologist. 
And so I, I do think, as you pointed out, it's sort of incumbent on us to sort of understand, even if we are not prescribing all of these medications, um, what our patients might ask us and, and, what, uh, and who we should direct them to if it's sort of beyond the scope. So maybe I'll just kick it off. And, and you sort of told, told us a little bit about um, this concept of, of you know, short and long-term side effects, but let's just really talk about some side effects of ADT. You know, what are some of the key things that you want listeners, whether that's urologists or APPs or even members of the office staff, what should we be looking for? What should be, we, we be assessing when we think about patients on ADT? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, as you know, for many years as urologists, we've sort of been the gatekeepers for hormone therapy, ADT. So, you know, when we start patients on lupulide, lupron, you know, or, or any other form of ADT, the, the main ones that we have to be aware of are things like hot flashes, decreased libido, erectile function, and then uh, some other sort of metabolic and cardiovascular side effects, um, increased risk of diabetes, uh, weight gain. Um, you can also have cognitive decline. And a, a lot of these things kind of make us fall into this realm of almost like a primary care physician when you start somebody at ADT. And I think one of the important things that we have to do as urologists who are starting this therapy is assess for these baseline comorbidities. So knowing that ADT can increase your risk of diabetes, we probably should be looking at the patient's chart or you know, even a primary care doctor's note and seeing, hey, did this person ever get screen for diabetes, most likely they have, uh, given the age range of our patients, you know, what's their A1C starting out? Um, if it's high, if it's out of whack, you may want to give them a heads up and say, hey, you should probably talk to your primary care doctor and let them know we're going to start this. Uh, sometimes I'll leave, even initiate the conversation and send a message, um, you know, through our EMR to one of the primary care docs and say, hey, just a heads up, I'm going to start this uh, patient on, on Lupron. And you may notice that his A1C or his blood sugar may get a little out of control. Um, so assessing for those baseline comorbidities is really important. Um, the cardiovascular risk is a tricky one, right? Because, you know, anytime anything comes, I don't know about you, Jay, but, you know, if I start to see EKGs coming my way or, you know, a stress test and I have to, like, interpret it, uh, I, I don't feel very comfortable doing that. But at the same time, we have to know that ADT may increase the risk of cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular events. And, you know, depending on whether you're looking at registry studies where you can see slightly increased risk of cardiovascular events in a Medicare population starting ADT or some other data, it, it gives us cause to make sure that we are staying on top of, you know, their cardiac history and at least in looping in the cardiologist. So again, in, in that sort of situation, if somebody I know, let's say, has had stents in place and we're starting them on ADT, I would let their cardiologist know. And if they have new onset symptoms of something like Oh, you know, I've been noticing more shortness of breath ever since I started this. Again, that's a, a red flag and a cause for concern. So it's a little bit of the primary care world. You know, we definitely have to be good communicators when we're starting people on ADT, especially for the short term and then the longer term cardiovascular side effects. But I think it, it is still within our wheelhouse to make sure that we're being good general physicians and taking care of patients for that. Yeah, no, I, I think that this point that you make is so valuable. And, and I, it's always amazing to me how many patients that I see who are diagnosed or even in the spectrum of advanced prostate cancer. And it's really interesting. You as the urologist are, are in many cases, uh, to them, you're their primary care doctor. I mean, they, they exactly. literally see you more than, um, 
than than some of their own PCPs. And and I always joke, it's almost like a, a bizarre thing in our healthcare system that sometimes you have access to specialists and and that's who they think is their their primary quarterback. And and I think you made a great point, which is that look, we all have busy clinics and 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 I think the the message that you've articulated really well is um, you look, we don't need to know, nor do we probably have the ability to manage all of this, but I think we should at least recognize it. And then as you alluded to, probably communicate when you are starting this. It's a quick message and, and obviously it loops in, whether it's the PCP, the cardiologist, uh, the endocrinologist, if the patient has diabetes and so on and so forth, that you might start seeing changes just because you've introduced a, a new therapy into the realm. So I, I think those are some some great, great points. Do you, um, just a few sort of nuts and bolts or practical questions. If you see a patient um, and you are initiating ADT, do you make a concerted effort to get that patient back in with their PCP at a certain interval? Or or do you just try to make sure that they're established overall with a, with a primary care physician? It's sort of like an active or yeah. passive process for you. Yeah, um, in the beginning, it's a little bit active because what I'll do is when we start the ADT, uh, of course, I'll ask them, when was the last time you saw your primary care doctor? And, you know, I typically give Lupron at three-month intervals as part of my systemic therapy regimen. So knowing that they're going to come back in three months, I'll say to them, hey, you know, make sure to check in with your primary care doctor. And like I said, I'll send a, a note through the EMR or, or try to forward my consultation notes to them and say, if you haven't seen them in a while, before you come back for your next shot, please make sure that you do see them. And, and that way I can at least give them something to follow up on and make sure that the primary care doctor is involved. Um, you know, that's probably the extent that I take it. Mm -hmm. No, I'm a lot more active if, if I definitely do see, you know, signs like the patient says, oh, I'm starting to feel short of breath or I'm really, really fatigued beyond what you typically would expect. Um, or, you know, every time a patient comes to clinic, like for all of us, they're checking vitals. And if you see that blood pressure, you know, really uh, above what their usual baseline is, then I'll be a little bit more active and say, okay, I need to actually call this primary care doctor or I need to make sure they're on their medications or whatnot. So, you know, in the beginning, it's for the first sort of three months, it is somewhat active. I think that that's important. It behooves all of us to make sure that the patients can tolerate it because staying on the therapy is important. And if if patients are having a hard time tolerating because of some side effects, they're more prone to come off of it or not be compliant. And that defeats the whole purpose of starting them. So yeah, that, that first three month window, I try to be a little bit active on that. And, and you talked a lot about some of the different um, disease states, but let's talk about the one that probably, you know, they're, they're, it's in our guidelines. It's one that we know about very commonly. I don't think it's one that we do as good a job in assessing for pretreatment, and it's probably not one that we do as good a job assessing during treatment. But maybe just talk a little bit about osteoporosis, osteopenia, measuring bone mineral density. Um, how do you do it? And and then yeah. and then at what frequency, perhaps, in these patients that are going to be on chronic androgen suppression? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, and my practice plan is different from a lot of other people. I, I There are tools where you can assess how somebody's risk is for, you know, a hip fracture. So there's like the fracture risk assess, assessment tool or FRAX. Um, that's something that you can type in different variables and see what the 10-year probability of a hip fracture is. And if it's high, then you'd either, you know, when you're going to start it, you can, again, send them back to their primary care doctor. 
maybe involve you know orthopedists if they're if you're really concerned. Um, probably the easiest thing, and I, I hate to just order tests to order tests, but is getting that baseline bone mineral density study. If you think you know the patient is on the higher side of a risk for a fracture or osteopenia, so getting a baseline DEXA scan is something that you can consider. But if you know you're very sort of in tune with the primary care world and you want to actually use one of these validated tools, that that's a good thing to do as well, because it'll give you valuable information. You know, if you know what the probability of a hip fracture is, because according to the guidelines, if that if that probability is high, then you want to start them on something like denosumab, because that's been shown to uh, prevent uh, fractures. Um, in patients who are starting ADT. Um, that's usually something our, our medical oncologist will do. So I don't actually prescribe the Nasumab, but again, knowing about that fracture risk and then making sure to follow up and, and start them on also calcium and vitamin D, that's that's important as well. You, you talked about it a little bit and, and, you know, maybe I'm going to close out sort of the discussion on just, you know, we've, we've been sort of talking about androgen deprivation therapy. We'll get to some of the novel hormonal therapies and obviously even um, some of the new kids on the block like PARP inhibitors, but maybe to close out the, the androgen deprivation therapy, you know, if you think about Lupron or any of these GNRH agonists or, or even GNRH antagonists, talk a little bit about... Um, um, this concept of metabolic syndrome and the changing morphology of the patient, right? They all come in and, you know, they, they talk to you a little bit about, they've got more, more around the trunk and less mm -hmm. sort of in the biceps and, and in yeah. the chest area. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. You know, what, what, what goes through your mind? What do you counsel patients on? And, and is there anything that we should be clued in on in that front? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that's always a tough one, especially for the younger patients, right? So, you know, if you have a patient who is uh, in their late 70s, 80s, they may not notice much of that shift. But somebody who is, you know, on the younger side, you know, mid 60s, who's been pretty fit and active, they're going to notice. I always give them a heads up that, look, you're going to gain a little bit more weight or it's going to be harder for you to lose weight when you exercise. Um, you're going to notice uh, breast tenderness, that sort of stuff decrease in muscle mass. So the, the best advice I give them is as much as you can don't uh, succumb to the fatigue and loss of energy and try to push yourself as hard as you can. And then diet plays an important role. I think, you know, although uh, we have these great trials, level one evidence about efficacy of certain medications, I think the world of diet and ADT, even though we may not have like a randomized control trial, that is very clear. But I think if you have a heart healthy diet, that's going to help you get through the ADT better you know so i tell people look avoid the the sweet sugary things and then you know avoid saturated fats red meat maybe get clean protein fish uh chicken that sort of stuff continue your exercise regimen and you know those are the things to help combat this shift in your your metabolic risk so so let's let's um let's pivot a little bit and and we've been talking a lot about i think what most urologists and, and urologic practitioners have been most comfortable with for the longest amount of time, which is this, this androgen deprivation therapy with the GNRH agonist or antagonist. So let's start talking maybe now about um, sort of the next generation of agents. And, and, you know, I say next generation, but the reality is they're here now and they're, and they're being used and they're being used readily. Talk a little bit maybe about some of these um, 
novel androgen synthesis inhibitors. Talk, maybe give us some of the names just so people understand what, what we're talking about. And then maybe perhaps let's delve into some of the, the side effects that may be a little bit more unique with these families of drugs. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think this is where podcasts like this and other uh, efforts by the AUA to educate urologists um, who are treating these patients on all the different agents is really important because, you know, even I keep in track of these things. They're, they're things that get approved as, as recently as back in August, combination therapies with PARP inhibitors and novel uh, androgen synthesis inhibitors. It's hard to keep up on all of these things. So, when you're thinking about the novel agents, you know, you break it down into castration sensitive, castration resistance, you know, they're kind of now both in, in each world of castration sensitive and castration resistant. But the main agents are abiraterone, uh, apalutamide, enzalutamide. Um, darolutamide is also something that's that's being used. And, you know, on top of all of this, there's combinations, right? So we've heard about recently uh, triplet therapy. So we're using actually chemotherapy plus darolutamide um, and, and ADT. And, and those are our unique set of side effects. Now, granted, most of the medical oncologists are the ones who are going to be given the chemotherapy. But again, because we're giving people Lupron, at least in, in our clinic here in Miami, you know, the urologists are still the ones who give the ADT. We need to be aware of some of these side effects that you may see with docetaxel and darolutamide on top of the ADT. Um, so, so those are the agents. Now, if we're going to dive into the side effects, some of them are are kind of unique to each agent. So, probably one of the first ones that came out of the novel androgen synthesis inhibitors was abiraterone. And when that rolled out, the one that had everybody sort of a little bit concerned was the uh, the hepatitis and the elevated liver enzymes. And you know, for obviously with hormone therapy, there can be liver, elevated liver enzymes, and we monitor that. But I think with the abiraterone, it took a little time for us urologists to get comfortable and get a handle on that. So when I start somebody on abiraterone and prednisone, for example, I'll get you know baseline LFTs. And then I'll actually check it monthly because what happens is if you notice an increase in the LFTs, depending on how high uh, they go up, um, you may want to actually back down on the dose or stop it altogether because that's something that can be significant. So you can get, if you look at the studies, grade three uh, to five liver toxicity in anywhere from seven to 10% of patients who are started on abiraterone. Uh, the other thing you can see is, you know, some sort of fluid retention, and that's related to the mineral or corticoid ex excess. So, you know, that can drive up your blood pressure. You can get edema. People who have are prone to AFib can get flipped into atrial fibrillation. So that all goes back into keeping the primary care doctor and the cardiologist in the loop, um, making sure that if you start to see signs of, you know, fluid retention, that you're you're getting them to check in with their PCP very quickly. And that's kind of unique to, to abiraterone again. Um, for the other agents like apalutamide and enzalutamide, those side effects are kind of more general, I guess. So, you know, things like rashes that you can get with uh, apalutamide, um, all of them come with some degree of fatigue. And that's a tough one because, you know, who isn't tired? <laughs> and a lot of these patients also are elderly. Um, but fatigue is a big problem. And in, in like enzalutamide patients, I've found that it can be pretty profound where I've had to stop the drug. Um, you can also get, you know, with apalutamide hypothyroidism. So sometimes, uh, again, if the primary care doctor notices it, but may not attribute it to that agent, you being the urologist, knowing that hypothyroidism can be seen with apalutamide 
then you can refer them to the endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, enzalutamide also had this, this warning at one point with uh, seizures. And there was a concern because it was, it was really low, like in both arms of the original studies, it's like less than 1%. But at the same time, it's something that was, you know, concerning enough. And there was a difference between the placebo and the enzalutamide arm. So that came sort of as a black box warning with enzalutamide is seizures. I, I fortunately have never seen a patient with that or had any patients with that. But again, if somebody's prone to it, maybe not using that drug or informing their neurologist would be, would be important. Yeah, I think, I mean, the way you phrased it is really correct. And I, and I think being cognizant of these side effects is absolutely critical. So, you know, it's really interesting. I, I had a patient not long ago that uh, had um, uh, M1 hormone sensitive prostate cancer, and I started them on ADT and enzalutamide. And it's very interesting. Um, their blood pressure crept up, crept up, crept up. I mean, they had real hypertension. And it's really okay. interesting. Um, it didn't fully occur to their PCP just because I think it was just not on their radar that it could have been this drug that the urologist was prescribing. And, and actually the patient called me and said, you know, my blood pressure has really been going up over the last few weeks. And I said, oh, it's probably the enzalutamide, take a break, stop it for a bit. So I, I do think that recognizing, of course, every, all these medications have a whole laundry list, but I think mm -hmm. knowing the big ticket items and, and at least having a clue that, hey, th this could be something that is there allows you to uh, pivot if you have to stop the drug, change to something else in that family or, or any of those. Do you, um, when you have these patients on uh, any of these sort of androgen synthesis inhibitors, um, how often have you found that engaging one of our other specialists uh, has been needed? I mean, do you find that a, a common event or have you done it more if somebody is having more severe um, sort of side effects or, or, or an adverse uh, reaction to the drug? Yeah, I mean, I, I do try to involve the other specialists fairly early. So if, if it starts to get significant enough for the patient to mention it on on multiple visits you know or if they're calling the office saying hey i've got this rash that won't go away it's been really severe then i'll always you know place that referral to dermatology because you know honestly what do i know about rashes but i do know <laughs> to identify it early and say hey um if if our derm colleagues can help us and if the dermatologist thinks they can manage it with let's say you know um hydrocortisone cream or something else then great, but if, or if they think it's not attributed to the drug, but if they think this is severe and significant enough, then they'll let me know, hey, this is a pretty significant rash. You may want to stop the medicine or start something else. Um, I, I think it's valuable to involve them early on. Same thing with sort of the endocrinopathies or, or like I'd mentioned before, hypothyroidism as something. Um, if, if the patient is fatigued, then the primary care doctor checks and notices that they're hypothyroid, then I will actually say, hey, maybe we should send them to endocrinology. So, my threshold is basically like if the patient is complaining to me enough about it beyond just the usual, oh, I'm tired or, or, or I've gained some weight, then I, I usually start to involve, you know, these appropriate specialists. Great. So um, now I'm going to sort of get to really some of the newer therapies and agents. And I, I think the, the, the data is becoming increasingly clear. These are part of our treatment algorithm and armamentarium. They're, you know, in the NCCN guidelines. Um, and, and obviously, I think as we are 
doing a better job in, in germline testing. Many of these patients were recognizing some of the mutational profiles that might be ideal for some therapies like PARP inhibitors or maybe immunotherapy. And even now with the growth of PSMA testing, obviously the luxury of Theranostics. So let's talk a little bit about this group. And you know, I think the reality is, at least at our place, um, these are agents that largely, you know, whether it's PARP inhibitors or immunotherapy, urologists don't really prescribe those, at least at, at Penn State. Uh, mm -hmm. But we often will co-manage a lot of these patients uh, throughout the disease spectrum. And I, I don't know how it is at Miami, but so I do find that at least here, it's, it's really imperative that we know um, patients are on these and what the side effects could be. So maybe talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. No, I, I agree. And I still think, again, all of these sort of adverse effects and, and even just knowing which drugs are in which space is still important for us as urologists because we still give the, the ADT, which for all these therapies, you still have to be on the ADT. And, you know, yeah, we can always say, oh, I'm, I'm giving you the Lupron shot and, you know, don't worry about it. Follow up with the medical oncologist. But the patients, like you said in the very beginning, Jay, they, they'll call us as their primary care doctor and say, hey, I'm experiencing this where weird situation, often even before they call their medical mm -hmm. oncologist. So just as a, a recap, PARP inhibitors are basically used in, in germline and somatic mutations in the homologous recombination repair genes. So like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations and so on. And there were two you know, main drugs that came out, um, I think it was probably about two years now, Olaparib and Rucaparib, um, which are used for these specific scenarios. So like Rucaparib is used in patients who have metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer, and if they have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation, and they've been treated with, with hormone agents like a, a novel SRI or a chemotherapy. So those patients are put on one of these PARP inhibitors. And you know what you'll see, and, and probably the most notable side effect I've seen for a patient who has been on this in my practice is like really profound fatigue. It was like the patient went from being, you know, not active, but fairly robust walking on their own to coming in in a wheelchair and their disease hadn't really progressed. I mean, yeah, they, they did have a rise in PSA, a few more meds, but they actually looked a lot worse than what you would expect their PSA and their chart to show. And I was like, wow, you know, I wonder what's going on. And, and it, it turned out that it was because they were started on the PARP inhibitor and, and it seemed like it was really knocking them down. Now, fatigue is a tough one like what do you do for that is there anything that you can really do to stop it apart from cycling them off the drug or switching to something else i don't you know really really know and that's where i do lean on my medical oncology colleagues um but if it's really affecting their quality of life where they can't function or move then you know that's that's something to look out for with these medications um other side effects one that was notable in the actual trial so like the profound study for olaparib was anemia so interestingly like a lot of these therapies yes you can get some anemia but not to the point where you may need a blood transfusion and that was one of the adverse events noted in again the trials with these agents so anemia is something to look out for so keep an eye on the the cbc and then other things that you can typically get with a lot of other systemic agents so gi side effects nausea vomiting uh diarrhea um thrombocytopenia can occur and then you have uh, also more severe but thankfully rare side effects like thromboembolic events such as PEs um, and those are something else to look out for when you start these agents. And what about um, 
So we, we talked about PARP inhibitors. Talk to us a little bit about maybe um, immunotherapy, and then we'll maybe finish with uh, talking a little bit more about uh, the theranostics. I feel like the immunotherapy, what, what I feel like most have heard about is the colitis and the GI type yeah. symptoms. Maybe talk to us a little bit more about, you know, colitis and what else? Yeah. So, you know, with the immunotherapies, and we're more familiar with it in the bladder cancer world or the kidney cancer world, but in prostate cancer, so pembrolizumab is the immunotherapy that's that's been approved. And that's for patients who undergo multiple lines of therapies and they go undergo tumor testing. And let's say they're, uh, they've got MSI high, microsatellite instability high, or if they have deficient mismatch repair genes, and those are patients who are candidate for immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. Now, you know, you can get sort of the, again, the generic side effects you get with a lot of these uh, systemic therapies. So diarrhea, you can get um, GI side effects, nausea, rash. But what you alluded to, which is the immune-mediated side effects, that's the one that, again, has us feeling a little bit uncomfortable as urologists in managing. So colitis is one of the things that can happen. And, and thankfully, again, these are all relatively rare less than sort of 5% incidence, but it's unique to these drugs. So for example, if you had a patient that came in and was saying that they were having bouts of diarrhea, uh, fever or bloody diarrhea, bloating after starting these medications and they hadn't seen their medical oncologist yet, that should alert you to the possibility of colitis. And sometimes it can be pretty severe where they end up in the emergency room. So if you, if you hear bloody diarrhea, bloating, fever, that kind of stuff, think colitis, and you, you may want to send that person to the ER. Now, how they manage some of these side effects can be, you know, tricky. So obviously you stop the drug, and then if this, the colitis is mild, um, you could potentially manage it with something like a corticosteroid, or if it's really severe, then they have to get high-dose immunosuppression. Um, other things like uh, pneumonitis is something else that can develop. So... You know, if a patient is started and they've got fevers, shortness of breath, you know, feeling like they can't catch their breath, chest pain, then you have to think about pneumonitis. And then again, that's somebody I'd probably send to the emergency room if it sounds severe enough. Um, you could notice some adverse effects on the renal function. So, you know, you can have autoimmune, immune mediated uh, nephritis where it can affect kidneys and kidney function. Um, and then also hepatitis. So if you notice a rise in LFTs, that's something that can also be attributed to pembrolizumab and, and uh, PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. So again, it's a sort of unique space for us to manage, but recognizing these things and knowing when to send a patient to the ER, not just you know thinking, oh, this is regular old GI symptoms, or oh, this is probably a cough and cold, when it's actually colitis or pneumonitis is something important to keep in mind. So in the last few minutes, why don't we talk a little bit about, and you've, you've sort of alluded to this at various points in our discussion today, but let's talk a little bit about um, how can we manage some of these side effects. And, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll sort of throw a few at you, and, and you've already, as I said, mentioned a few, but let's just take managing side effects and, and let's just take the patient, the general side effects of, of ADT and, and you know, yeah. general recommendations on how to manage those side effects. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we were mentioning before, you know, for, especially for an active patient, the first thing is, A, you give them a heads up, you let them know you're going to feel a little bit more tired, maybe a lot more tired. You're going to have hot flashes. Um, you're not going to want to go to the gym as much as you used to. Maybe you won't run as much as you used to, but you have to keep pushing. So I, I really encourage an exercise regimen for the younger, fitter patients, obviously not the ones who have 
you know, metastatic disease and are at risk for fractures. But if you're, you know, let's say one of these non-metastatic patients and you're on starting on enzalutamide and ADT, then trying to get them to continue their ex exercise regimen is important. And then again, the diet is important because we had mentioned earlier this shift in metabolic profile, um, increased uh, risk of diabetes because of insulin resistance, um, changes in your lipid profile. So you have to, and, and I always, you know, when the patient comes in and say, hey, you know, how's your appetite? What have you been eating these days? And, you know, I look at their spouse and say, you know, is he eating pretty clean? Is he, is he having more fish and chicken than red meat? Um, so a heart healthy diet, you know, is something that I try to push on them. And that's something that when you tell patients a heart healthy diet, because thankfully, you know, it's been promoted so much, much in the lay press because of cardiac disease, the patients can wrap their head around, okay, I know I need to eat more fish, I need to eat more veggies, need more fiber. So I just reiterate heart healthy diet. And those are kind of like the, the mainstream things. Now, if you're talking about other things like hot flashes, so that, that's a tricky one. Um, you know, with hot flashes, you can try things like megase or progesterone. Um, venlafaxine is something that people have used with some success for the hot flashes. Uh, I've had moderate success with that, um, you know, and I, I kind of, especially for patients on intermittent therapy, or if I know there's just a, a two-year window, I try to talk them through it, you know, say, hey, when you feel the hot flash coming on, go in front of the AC or in front of a fan that can help as well, um, or giving them one of those medications. And then, uh, you know, for these other novel therapies, as I mentioned before, you know, if you really think something is attributed to the dr drug itself, like we talked about abiraterone and hepatitis, you know, reducing the dose or stopping it altogether. Um, if you think a patient is developing, you know, pneumonitis, but it's not so severe, even though you're not their medical oncologist, if they're on Pembro, you can give them supportive care. Um, I don't think you need to do something like start them on steroids. That's probably not in our wheelhouse, but just know that that's something for if, if, if somebody's having grade three or four toxicities, corticosteroids is something you can use. Um, another, you know, again, newer agent and some of the things that we may uh, see is a lot of the, the hematologic changes that come with the theranostics. So, uh, for example, lutetium and radium-223, you can see things like thrombocytopenia, anemia, you know, and, and it's more a matter of just going through the patient's chart, seeing that it's there and making sure to alert the medical oncologist or the uh, primary care doctor. Um, and then those are some of the things that I will do in my practice. I mean, you know, I, I'm not the main person to fix these problems, but I definitely can make suggestions and identify and, and send them in the right direction when these things do occur. And, and I think, you know, the, the very first point you made when you talked about managing the side effects, which is really diet and exercise, as you've said several times here, you know, these patients, whether or not they're at the very beginning of this journey or at the end of this journey, androgen deprivation therapy is core to all of this. All of this other stuff is just additive too, whether it's novel hormonal therapy, chemotherapy, even some of the newer agents. And so I think that at a minimum, if we do our due diligence with heart healthy diet and exercise and sort of bang that drum, they're probably in a better place than if they weren't doing either, even in addition to all of the other, um, you know, stopping therapy, starting therapy. I, I think those basic lifestyle elements are, are just absolutely core and, and probably what we should be doing um, for our patients. Absolutely. 
Um, Chad, uh, as always, it's it's always delightful to have you on. Uh, you you uh, you not only have a great command of uh, of the disease and the treatments, but uh, you do a great job in sort of putting it all in context in really simple terms. And we really appreciate you, uh, as always, joining us on these podcasts and giving us your time and your insight. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure, Jay. I appreciate you having me. Uh, for our audience, thank you very much for your time and your attention. For more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And uh, on the site, uh, Dr. Rich has provided several references uh, that uh, tie into some of the material that was covered uh, during this episode. And so we certainly encourage you to use those resources as you see fit. Uh, Chad, I look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, again, thanks so much. Thank you.